Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Coming up this week, better biofuels, how the burning bush, ironically, could hold the key to more efficient biodiesel production. We'll also be talking bacteria, why some people are more likely to suffer from MRSA than others. And the first synthetic cell, is it hip or is it hype? We'll find out. Hello, I'm Chris Smith. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. And also on the show this week is your favourite. It's Dr Kat. Hello, Kat. Hello. This week, we're also exploring the science of transmissible tumours. And these are the rare cancers that you can actually catch or viruses that cause them. Now, Elizabeth Murchison is here uh, with us to talk about Tasmanian devils and a fatal cancer that they spread to each other through biting. And later in the programme, we'll hear from virus researcher Margaret Stanley how the human papillomavirus, HPV, causes cervical cancer and whether the new vaccine introduced recently to cut the risk of the disease is having the impact we're all hoping for. Chris. Thank you, Kat. Meanwhile, and this is coming up later in the programme, can you tell us what animal made this sound? <laughs> it wasn't Dr Cat, just in case you were wondering. But do keep guessing. Diana's got the answer for you and it's coming up in Question of the Week. But if you do have a theory on that or you've got a question for the show, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com and you can send us a tweet as an alternative to at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris Smith and Dr Katani. Kat, what have you got for us first? Well, have you ever seen a burning bush? These shrubs originated in Asia, but they've managed to evade North America, and they're so-called because in autumn they have a very distinctive flame-red foliage. Now, they may look impressive, but actually they're considered to be a bit of a pest, as they're an invasive species. But researchers at Michigan State University have made a discovery that could help turn the burning bush into the saviour of future biofuels, at least according to a paper in PNAS this week. And what are they saying? The burning bush produces an unusual oil which could be very useful for fuel and food as it's got quite a low viscosity, that's its stickiness or thickness. Sounds like my mum's cooking. <laughs> exactly. And many plant oils are too thick to use in diesel engines so they have to undergo a process to convert them into biodiesel. But the oil from the burning bush is runny enough to use directly in diesel engines. It's also actually lower in calories than other plant oils so it might be useful for making low-cal foods. But Unfortunately, the burning bush isn't really suitable for agricultural growing and harvesting, so researchers led by Timothy Durrett sequenced the genes in a common ornamental species of burning bush to find the gene that produces the key components of the oil, these molecules called acetylglycerides. And um, what do they do? Well, they took this gene and then they used genetic engineering to add it to a plant called Arabidopsis. This is a little type of cress that's commonly used by a lot of plant researchers. And these modified cress plants then started making acetylglycerides, producing oil with uh, a purity up to about 80%. So it's quite promising that maybe they'll be able to produce high-quality oil on a large scale in the future, either by genetically modifying oilseed crops such as oilseed rape, that's canola for our US listeners, or in other more technological biological biofuel production systems such as algae. They're not there yet, but these are exciting early results and hopefully they'll fuel further research, if you uh, pardon the terrible pun. Not as bad, not as ironic even as the 
fact that it's actually the burning bush which is uh, giving us the, the key to new, new fuels. Indeed. Thank you, Kat. Well, something that caught my eye earlier this week was the discovery as to why some people seem to be more prone to being colonised with and getting infections from Staphylococcus aureus, a kind of bacterium which includes MRSA. And this discovery is important because it could pave the way for developing novel ways to treat the problem or identify patients who might be at risk of staph infections and therefore managing them a bit better in hospital. So what's the story? How does this work? Well, this is a paper that's come out of Japan. It's Tadayuki Awazi, who's a researcher at Jikei University's School of Medicine over in Japan. What they did was to take swabs from 88 patients and they found, predictably, that one-third of them were positive for Staphylococcus aureus because we know that roughly one in three people carries this bug in the population. What was interesting, though, is that they found that nearly 100% of those people were also colonised with a relative of Staph aureus called Staph epidermidis. This is a human-friendly bacterium, what we would dub a good bacterium, which lives on the majority of us and does us no harm normally. But the researchers wondered whether there was something special about the type of Staph epidermidis that the people who had Staph aureus carriage actually had. So what they did was to painstakingly look at every single chemical that was produced by these Staph epidermidis strains of bacteria carried by these people when they grew. And they then compared the strains of Staph epidermidis and the chemicals they made with whether or not someone was carrying Staph aureus. And, amazingly, they found a difference. People that are colonised with Staph aureus, the Staph epidermidis that they carry lacks a gene which is a gene which encodes a protein. It's a gene called ESP, and it encodes a protein that makes the bacterial equivalent of mace spray. It basically disperses or nukes colonies of Staphylococcus aureus. So basically there are different strains of Staph epidermidis, the good bacteria we can carry on us, and about half of the Staph epidermidis that people carry can fend off Staph aureus with this particular gene, this ESP gene, which disperses Staph aureus colonies. You might say, well, why would one strain of bacterium want to commit biological warfare against one of its close relatives? Well, the answer is purely selfishness. The bugs that live on our bodies and in our bodies are all competing against each other for a limited amount of space and limited resources. So by developing this sort of chemical elbow out of the way, what these bugs are doing is basically securing their own future at the expense of these potential invaders. So what does this discovery now mean? Can we come up with some kind of you know, bactericide based on this? That's what they're saying. It may be possible to do probably two things. One is, because people who carry the abnormal form of Staph epidermidis, the one that doesn't defend them against Staph aureus, are more prone to getting infected and getting problems with Staph aureus and MRSA. Perhaps when microbiologists swab patients in hospital looking for people who are carrying Staph aureus and MRSA, perhaps they could also look at their Staph epidermidis and see if they've got this gene, because if people don't carry that particular strain, they're less likely to get Staph infections. That's the first point. Second point is, yes, maybe we can take a leaf out of nature's chemistry book and borrow the same technique that these bugs are using to kill off their Staph aureus relatives, and we could develop an antibiotic that basically works the same way. Real-life example of germ warfare, I guess.
Anyway, let's turn our attention to fertility and infertility. Now, unlike men who are constantly producing new sperm, women have to work with a fixed number of egg cells from birth. Us girls are born with around 800,000 immature dormant egg cells known as follicles, and a couple of thousand of these are activated by hormones during each menstrual cycle, ticking down our biological clock until the menopause. So there's a certain amount of time pressure on becoming a mum, at least in the biological sense. But now an international team of scientists writing in the journal PNAS this week have found a way to reactivate these dormant egg cells and it could have big benefits for infertile women or those who've had their ovary tissue frozen before treatment for diseases such as cancer. Sounds terrific. How have they done it, though? Well, this is work from Jing Li at Stanford University in the US and researchers in China, Japan and America, and it all hinges on a gene called P10. Now, using mice, Li and her team found that shutting off P10 using a special chemical could activate the dormant egg follicles in the ovaries of newborn mice. And when they transplanted these follicles into adult female mice whose ovaries had been removed, they could produce mature eggs and even baby mice. Which is very neat, but isn't if my memory serves me correctly, P10 also involved in protecting cells from cancer. So if you block it, doesn't that mean you could be at risk of getting tumours? That's a very good point. But luckily, the researchers actually didn't find any tumours developing when they did these experiments. And instead, the activated follicles always developed into mature eggs, which produced healthy baby mouse pups. And these pups grew into adults and had healthy babies of their own, suggesting there aren't any fundamental inherited problems with the cells or the DNA inside them. Lovely for mice. What about men? Or maybe I should say women? Well, obviously it's more challenging to do these experiments in humans, but the researchers did manage to do some tests on ovary tissue that had been taken from women having operations for ovarian cancer. And treating them with a P10-blocking chemical did cause follicles to mature and produce egg cells, but unfortunately it looks like there might be a few problems with these eggs. So we're not sure that it will work in women, and a lot more research is needed to be done before we know if we can actually use this technique to treat infertility. Fertile food for thought, I'd say. Thank you very much, Kat. Now, also this week, uh, we've seen the J. Craig Venter Institute announce the creation to huge fanfare of a brand new synthetic microorganism, which has been dubbed by some as Cynthia. Now, this has provoked a lot of excitement, but also a large amount of controversy, and some have argued that Cynthia isn't entirely synthetic. So to tell us more, here's Craig Venter and Victoria Gill. Their genetic heritage is the computer. So it is absolutely the first uh, synthetic life form, a a cell-driven, controlled totally by synthetic DNA. So we call it synthetic because everything in the cell has been made and dictated by that synthetic chromosome, even though we do start with another uh, living species Uh, We use that to initially read the genetic code and until it can transform itself into the species controlled uh, and dictated by that synthetic chromosome. That's Dr. Craig Venter from the eponymous J. Craig Venter Institute talking about his research team's new synthetic cells. But are they really synthetic cells? Is this synthetic life? Well, strictly speaking, it's just the genome that's synthetic. What they've done is taken a copy of an existing bacterial genome, looked at all the DNA inside a simple bacterial cell. They've decoded that on a computer, and then they've taken that and used the information to chemically construct a new genome, synthesising a genome in the lab from scratch. It's an impressive technological step, but many biologists say that it's overstating the development to call it synthetic life. But their new cell does live. It's replicated now over a billion times. 
So why are scientists doing this? Well, Dr. Venter says the endeavour began as an effort to understand life on the most intimate level. What he's developed now, he says, are the tools to design new organisms, which could mark a new era of biotechnology. I think they're going to potentially create a new industrial revolution if we can really get cells to do the production we want, if they could help wean us off of oil uh, and reverse some of the damage to the environment by capturing back carbon dioxide. I would be pretty satisfied with that outcome uh, alone. We think uh, some of the earliest applications people will see is in new vaccines. We can make in a day new flu vaccines uh, that have taken much longer to produce by conventional methods. And we're working with the National Institutes of Health and Novartis to build the process for uh, very rapidly as new infections emerge to synthetically, in 24 hours or less, make those vaccine candidates and get them into testing. But these claims, too, have sparked criticism, not just by scientists who feel the potential of this technology has been overstated, but by the wider community. Julian Salvalescu, an ethics professor from the University of Oxford, has said that the potential of this science is, although very far in the future, very real and significant, dealing with pollution and creating the new energy sources that Dr Venter himself is so enthusiastic about. But as he pointed out, the risks are also unparalleled. And this is a very rapidly moving and new field. It seems that the regulatory and safety discussions haven't really kept pace. This technology could be used in the future to make some very powerful bioweapons. That's a very extreme example, but the potential is there. It's less than 15 years since Dr Venter first announced that he wanted to create a synthetic organism. And we're already at this stage... What concerns many people now is that the pace of this exciting new field of biology should not overtake those ethical and safety discussions. As Professor Salvalescu puts it, the challenge now is to eat the fruit without the worm. That was Victoria Gill and Craig Venter on the possibilities heralded by Cynthia, the first microorganism with an entirely synthetic genome. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Kat. Now, 2010 is the International Year of Biodiversity and a park in the centre of Bristol may not seem the obvious place to study biodiversity. Depends what you're up to, I suppose. But this weekend, Blaze Park has been host to what's known as a bio-blitz, which is an attempt to find and catalogue all the different types of wildlife that you might come across. Bio-blitzes are going to be happening all over the country in the next few months, so to explain more about what's coming and to hear about what they've done over the weekend, we're joined by Ed Druitt, and he's from the Bristol Natural History Consortium. Hello, Ed. Hello, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you for joining us. First of all, could you tell us what actually is a bio-blitz? Yeah, well, a bio-blitz is basically an opportunity to bring uh, scientific experts, naturalists, volunteers and the public schools and families together to basically see and find as many different species that are living in an area as possible. So as you mentioned, in Bristol we did it at Blaise Castle Estate and we had lots of uh, schools on the Friday and then families on the Saturday engaging with experts and naturalists and volunteers looking for the different trees, lichens, uh, aquatic insects, birds and, and everything else that lives up there. And what are you hoping to get out of this? Why do we think this is worth doing? primarily really to sort of engage the public, engage people in different parts of the country, in this case in Bristol really, with what's on their doorstep and opening people's eyes up to what's actually there. But also there's some real kind of scientific outputs as well. On the BioBlitz that we had over the last couple of days or so, we found 536 species, of which two were nationally scarce and I think not really recorded before. 
including ones such as the grass rivulet moth, for example. And so it's an opportunity to find out what's there and to then be able to advise the, for example, the land manager for Blaze, which is owned by Bristol City Council, and what's there and what they can do to help some of that, that wildlife. A lot of that data then goes, or all of that data then goes to the Bristol Regional Environmental Records Centre, and they then put that data into a special database, which can be used by members of the public and uh, businesses who perhaps want to then find out what's on there, particularly, for example, if there was a, a building application, which is probably not going to happen on this particular place, but might happen elsewhere in the country. And so we can have a good idea of what's actually living at the, in these places. So when people come along to get involved, how will they actually uh, go out and, and collect the data? Will they be given a, a pooter, one of those pots with tubes coming out to suck things up, or do they go around in little teams? How's That's the data right, gathered? Yeah. Well, basically, we had families, let's say, you know, you might have had, say, 10 people, it might be two or three families going out with a, with a naturalist and a couple of volunteers. So they might, for example, be going into some grasslands. So they'll take out a couple of sweep nets and some white trays and, and ID charts and actually be doing their own sweep netting and discovering what's in that grassland. Likewise, if they're looking in a stream or a pond, they'd obviously be doing that with nets and also using pooters as well to get some of the very tiny insects. And then that information is then put onto recording forms, which is kind of almost like quality controlled through the naturalist who will be putting that onto the recording forms. And from there, then that gets put onto the actual database. So it's very much about getting the public and schools hands-on with nature. So we had school children and families properly doing sweep netting and then really discovering on a small, you know, small kind of minute level what was actually living on their doorstep. And what do the scientists and naturalists who you've had involved in this, what do they make of it and are they supportive? Absolutely. I think that what we found early on, particularly perhaps uh, in previous years, and last year when we first sort of started this, was scientists and naturalists being particularly modest about themselves and don't always necessarily see themselves as someone who, who can offer loads of, loads of opportunities. But I think now we've, we've got the balance right of being able to enable and give the confidence to naturalists and, and other scientists to come forward and realise that they can feel empowered and actually take uh, families or school groups out themselves and actually engage people with them. So it's had a very positive uh, output and I think it's a really nice way. I think people that have enjoyed actually uh, transferring their knowledge and their skills onto people perhaps who wouldn't normally uh, engage or, or do this sort of thing. And it's not just Bristol. This is going to be scaled up or is going to be taken to other cities around the country. So we'll have one coming to Cambridge, won't we? Absolutely, that's right. So Bristol has been leading on this in terms of being one of the first uh, cities to do this this year, linking in with the Year of Biodiversity. And there's going to be lots of other ones, over uh, 15 or 16 across the country taking place. And people can find out where they're taking place by visiting the website bioblitzuk.org.uk. Uh, and as you say, you can find out where things are going to be happening close to you. And there's going to be one in Derby, there'll be one that Natural History Museum are doing down, in, down on the coast in, in Devon, for example. So they're going to be happening all across the country. And therefore, uh, families, the public, scientists can all engage on a local scale. And finally, Ed, what do the people who come and take part, members of the public, actually make of the experience? Do they, do they think it's just a, a run around in the grass if they're kiddies, or do they actually take away the scientific message as well? I think people have actually really been engaging. When you've seen people actually getting down to the minute level and wanting to do more, and we've had lots of families come back. So we had families, for example, doing the Dawn Chorus Walk, and then they came back later on to perhaps do some stream sampling or doing some, some insect work. So from what we can tell so far, it's been a very positive engagement with people wanting to come back and do more and hopefully continue with our Bristol Fest of Nature that we've got, for example, in a couple of weeks' time in June.
Ed, brilliant. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's uh, Ed Druitt from the Bristol Natural History Consortium. And as he said, you can find out if there's a BioBlitz happening near you from the website bioblitzuk.org. UK. Also, if you'd like to find out anything about any of the news stories we've covered on this week's show so far, they're all on our website with the references and, and other supporting materials at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. If you want to get in touch through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thanks, Kat. Now, this week, we are looking at the science of transmissible tumours, quite literally cancers that can be caught. And a very unusual type of cancer is currently hitting Tasmanian devils, and it's called devil facial tumours disease. And as the name suggests, it leads to tumours on these devils' faces, which makes it, amongst other things, very hard for them to eat, which means they don't tend to live for very long once they actually begin to show the symptoms. But what's really unusual about this tumour is that it's directly passed between the animals probably when they bite each other. And Elizabeth Murchison uh, is from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. She's with us today and she's been looking into the genetic basis of the disease. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you for coming in and joining us. Hello. First of all, for people that are not acquainted or ill-acquainted with what Tasmanian devils are, just describe one for us. Tasmanian devils are um, a small dog-sized black creature. Um, They have a black coat with a white stripe under their chest and they're very well known for their piercing nocturnal scream, which is I think where they got their name from. And they have very, very strong, powerful jaws, which they use for crunching bones. That sounds like wonderful creatures. (laughs) Um, What's the background to the emergence of this problem? When did it first become apparent that there was an issue with them? Well, the story really started back in 1996 when a wildlife photographer took a picture of a devil with this strange mass on its face. And he was a bit concerned at the time and he took this photograph to the um, local authorities and people just thought that this was just one particular devil with one strange cancer and didn't really think too much more about that. But then over subsequent years, more and more devils started to show up with these unusual facial tumours all up and down the east coast of Tasmania. And around 2000, 2001, it became very, very apparent this was a new type of infectious disease affecting devils. And from a conservation point of view, people were presumably worried because they don't exactly go far across anywhere. They're just stuck in Tasmania, aren't they now? That's right. So devils used to be found all over Australia, but they went extinct uh, some probably about a thousand years ago on the mainland of Australia. They've been isolated now on the island of Tasmania for about 14,000 years. And uh, they're very unique. Uh, They're not found anywhere else. And they're really part of, uh, they're really an icon for Tasmania. Indeed. Well, the name says it all, isn't it? Yeah. But what have researchers done then to try and work out what these tumours are and get to the bottom of how they're spreading amongst the animals? Well, obviously it was a very, very strange thing to find a a cancer which was being transmitted as an infectious disease. So the first thought that people thought of was that it was probably a virus. And so uh, experiments were directed at trying to find viral particles in these cells and really didn't get anywhere. And uh, at the same time, researchers in Tasmania were looking at the chromosomes of the tumour and they found, surprisingly, that all the Tasmanian devil tumours that they looked at had remarkably similar chromosome rearrangement. So cancers tend to have very rearranged chromosomes, but each cancer is different and has a different set of rearrangements. But the striking thing about this cancer was that all of the tumours had the same almost identical rearrangements, which really couldn't occur 
in any other way other than them actually being the same cancer. So somehow, physically, cells from one tumour were going from one animal to the other and seeding a fresh tumour in the recipient animal. That was the only conclusion that could be consistent with this data, is that the same actual physical cancer cell was being transmitted between individuals, probably by biting, and that the same cancer which arose once in a single individual that probably lived back in the mid-1990s, has actually spread through the Tasmanian devil population and is now affecting thousands of devils around Tasmania. So some poor devil, excuse the pun, originally had a cancer. Because its chromosomes were rearranged, it had some genetic changes that made it develop a tumour, and it then spawned this disease, which it began to pass on to other individuals. Exactly, and we we really don't know very much about those early events, but we think that one individual devil that probably lived up in the northeast of Tasmania got some normal type of cancer, which then acquired the capability of being transmitted between individuals. So what's special about it so it can do that? Because is it that the animals, because they're a restricted population they're very, very alike and therefore putting a cell from one animal into another, the immune system doesn't view it as necessarily that hostile, so it kind of tolerates it. That's right. So there's something very, very odd about this cancer because normally if you take any tissue from one individual and put it into another individual, it gets rejected because our immune systems are able to tell self from non-self. In this case, this tumour is not being recognised as non-self and is not being rejected. And we don't really understand how that works, but one possibility is that devils are a very restricted and inbred population that don't tend to recognise self from non-self because they're too closely related. Uh, The other possibility is that perhaps the tumour is is secreting substances or somehow actively tricking the immune system uh, not to see it as a foreign tissue. That's interesting. So devils can do this. Does that mean that other animals can? Or is this an isolated thing? Is this the only example of a cancer we're seeing spreading like this? No, there's another case uh, of a naturally occurring transmissible cancer which is spread by living cancer cells in dogs, actually. And it's a very, very interesting cancer. It's venereal and it's transmitted by... um, sexual contact and uh, it's actually a very very old cancer that probably is at least 2,000 years old if not older than that which uh, is spread through the entire world population of dogs and is found everywhere but it's all derived from one single cancer which arose in a dog some thousands of years ago so the devil's not the only case. So can you get clues from what's going on in the dogs to ask well, how is this happening in devils then? Does it give you clues? Exactly. So that's what we're hoping to do. I'm actually studying this dog cancer quite intensively as well because I'm a geneticist and uh, we don't have a lot of genetic tools for devils, at least at the moment. And so uh, we have a, a dog genome sequence that we can use to study this dog cancer and study the genetic mutations that have happened to allow this dog cancer to evade the immune system. And we're hoping to perhaps transfer that to the devil. Because if those cancers, both the dogs and the devils, are secreting something interesting, which puts the immune system off the scent. That could be really helpful medically, couldn't it, if you can work out how it's doing that? Because we've got a big problem with organ transplants where we have to immunosuppress people very heavily to tolerate donor organs. If we had a way of making the immune system tolerate specific tissues, that could be a massive breakthrough. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's going to be very, very interesting when we start to learn how these cancers are evading the immune system and to see whether or not we could use similar strategies to trick immune systems to not recognising foreign grafts as really being foreign. Any progress yet? It's still early days. 
we are finding mutations in uh, the devil cancer, which is allowing us to, to start to track how the devil's cancer has spread through Tasmania. And in the case of the dog, we're finding uh, interesting different pockets of cancer mutations that have arisen in different continents. But it's still early days and we're hoping to eventually develop something that will be able to help the devils in the wild. Well, we wish you luck. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Murchison, who is from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. It's also important to point out that so far the only cancers you can catch are this devil cancer and the dog cancer, and there's no worry that you can catch cancer from another person with cancer. So I should point that out. I get asked that a lot. Can you catch cancer from someone? Well, having said that, Kat, what about um, organ transplants? Because obviously if there is a cancer that we don't know about lurking inside a donor organ, there's a possibility you could transmit that, couldn't you? There is a possibility, and also, interestingly, in patients who have had organ transplants they're often on immunosuppressive drugs to stop their immune system attacking the cancer and in fact this can lead to an increase in certain types of cancer in the patient so but it's you shouldn't be worried if one of your relatives is affected by cancer you can't catch it off them so that's important to point out anyway we are talking about transmissible cancers today and this is the naked scientists if you want to twitter at the naked scientists we are at naked scientists and you can send us an email it's chris at the naked scientists.com uh, still to come we'll find out how a cervical smear test is actually performed and analyzed and we'll also hear how carrot juice could help you to spot cancerous cells that's coming up remember this noise that i exposed you to for want of a better word earlier i'll give you a little taster what do you think it is well mark in bletchley says it's a cuckoo bird what do you reckon if you have any ideas hang around for a little bit longer because diana o'carroll has the answer for this week's question of the week cat it sounds like the noise my dog made when we accidentally shut her tail in the boot of the car. That was a terrible day. Anyway, back to the subject in hand, and we are talking about transmissible cancers, and we're also talking about viruses that can cause cancer. Now, there's lots of ways and reasons that cancer develops, but in some cases, we do know that viruses can cause the disease, and the human papillomavirus, or HPV, is the main cause of the majority of cases of cervical cancer. And today we're joined in the studio by Professor Margaret Stanley from the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University. Hello, Margaret. Hi there, Kat. Let's talk a little bit about HPV, this virus that we hear so much about in the news. How does it actually cause cancer? How does a virus cause cancer? Well, the first thing I have to say is that HPV is a huge family of viruses. So we're only talking about a few members of this family that actually have the ability to cause cancer because they cause lots of other things, but only a few of them cause cancer. How do they do it? Well, the ones that cause cancer actually uh, are pretty decent people on the whole. But in certain circumstances, the way in which the virus is growing in the cells is deregulated. There are accidents that happen. And the virus actually uses the cell's own ability to divide to help it make its own virus particles. But if it's turned on, if certain of its genes are turned on in cells that really are actively dividing, then it, it makes the cell cycle of those cells completely chaotic. And so it's an accident that happens. It's a rare accident, but once it happens, the cell's deregulated. It no longer can control how often it divides and when it dies. And that's the way this virus causes cancer, accidentally. So it effectively hijacks the cell and makes them multiply. Absolutely. And we're talking about lots and lots of different types of HPV. 
there is only a few that cause cancer. Yeah. Do they cause other diseases as well? Oh, yes. Uh, HPV is not just the cause of cervix cancer. It causes cancer of the vulva in women, cancer of the vagina, only uh, 50% of those. But it causes cancer of the anus, which is the back passage. And it's looking as though it causes probably more than 90% of those. And recently it's become clear it also causes cancer in the mouth. Now, it's only special places in the mouth. It's the back of the mouth, the skin that covers the tonsil, and at the base of the tongue, the skin that covers the area there. And it looks as though it causes probably 80 to 90% of the cancers in those sites. Obviously, we hear about HPV infection. How does someone become infected with HPV? Well, in in the genital area, it's a sexually transmitted infection, and everybody throws their hands up at this. But... I always say it's actually easier to catch HPV than it is to get pregnant. It's an, it's an inevitable part of having a normal sex life. So virtually all of us have actually been exposed to this virus uh, in our genital area. 80% of us probably will have been infected throughout our lives, but nearly all of us get rid of it. It's just a small fraction of people who somehow can't get rid of this virus. Their immune system can't do the business. So this is the question, obviously, if many, many, many thousands, hundreds, millions of people are infected with HPV, but only every year, say, three, four thousand women get cervical cancer, what is it? What is the difference between having an HPV infection and getting cancer and having an HPV infection? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. (laughs) What are the clues? (laughs) Well, of course, we don't know who is susceptible to HPV infection. We don't know which women and men are totally unable to get rid of it. What we can do, of course, is identify those people, those women, who have not managed to get rid of the virus and in whom these uh, these genetic events that cause cancerous cells are occurring. That's why you have cervical smears. So we can identify those people once they've started that process of turning cells into abnormal cells. But I can't go out into the population and say, look, I know you won't be able to get rid of HPV, so I'm going to do something about it. I can't do that. We're going to hear later a bit more about cervical screening, but let's talk now about the vaccine, because obviously if we can prevent people from getting infected with HPV, we could actually prevent the process of developing cervical cancer at all. How does the vaccine actually work? What's it designed for? The vaccine is designed to generate the immune response that would prevent the virus infecting cells. In other words, it generates antibodies. And antibodies are things that bind viruses and stop them getting into cells. And if the virus can't get into a cell, then it can't start the business of changing the cell. So the vaccine generates antibodies in you. And it generates antibodies at a good level and probably all sorts of other bits of the immune response. So you take 13-year-olds, which is what we do in this country, and we give them the vaccine. And that means that um, as they grow up through their teens, 20s and 30s, if they are exposed to the virus, the virus can't get into cells because the antibody binds to it and stops it. So that's how the vaccine works. 
So it's important to protect girls before they become sexually oh, absolutely. active. Absolutely, absolutely. Vaccines don't work once you're infected. They only work to stop you getting infected, which is the reason why you take adolescents who are at that early stage in their lives and they haven't started their sexual life. You would certainly hope not. <laughs> well, one, I definitely hope so. And how is the vaccination programme going so far? What are the early results? Oh, it's been a stunning success, I think is the only way I can describe it. If you're going to be effective with a vaccine, you probably need to get 80% of people vaccinated. Now, in the couple of years that this vaccination programme's been going, on average, between 80 and 90% of 13-year-olds in Britain have been vaccinated. An absolutely stunning success. Probably the best results in the world. Fantastic. So in a few years, we should see a big drop in cervical cancer incidence. Well, I th initially, we're going to see a drop in the precancers, the things that you hope are identified by the smears. But I think what's really important to emphasise is that we will see a drop in young women with cancer, with cervix cancer. People think of cervix cancer as something that you get when you're 40, 50, 60. Actually, in this country, there are about 300 women under 30 every year who get cervical cancer. We ought to see a drop in that in the next 10 years. Well, we look forward to that. Thank you. That's Margaret Stanley from Cambridge University shedding light on the link between HPV and cervical cancer. Thanks, Kat. And now cervical screening helps to catch cancers before they become a problem, as we've just been hearing. But what actually happens to a sample after it's been taken? Well, Mira Senthalingham's been to find out. This week, I've come along to Northwick Park Hospital in London to find out the basics of the cervical screening programme. Here to fill me in on this process is Tanya Levine, consultant cellular pathologist here at Northwick Park Hospital. First of all, who should be screened? Women between the ages of 25 and 64 are invited for screening. And when somebody comes in for a sample, we know that the sample's taken from their cervix, but what part of the cervix is the sample taken from and why that particular area? The sample should come from an area of the cervix, which is the neck of the womb, and this area is called the transformation zone. And it develops at about the time of puberty, and what happens at that stage is that under the influence of oestrogens, the cervix increases in size and bulk. And in so doing, some of the surface layer of cells undergo a process of squamous metaplasia. And what this really means is that the cells change their appearance. And this is a normal physiological process, but it can be hijacked if you get human papillomavirus on board. The cells can be converted from this normal physiological pathway to the precancer sequence of events. Okay, so now, say you have a sample and you have a slide of the cells from this transformation zone around the cervix. What changes are looked for? Of the many cells that you can see on a sample, there are two basic type of cells that we're particularly interested in as cytologists. One are called squamous cells and the other are called endocervical cells. Now, the squamous cells look not a little unlike fried eggs in that the yolk of the egg is the nucleus and the white of the egg is a region of the cell that we call the cytoplasm. We're looking to see the consistency of the nucleus or consistency of, of that yolk, if you will. And in so doing, we will grade those cells as mild, moderate or severely dyscaliotic 
cells. OK, and so in order to just show me how clear some of these differences can be, you've got some slides here with some samples taken from patients in the past. What I thought I'd show you is a normal sample, just to get your eye in on what we're looking at down the microscope. And Mira, if you look down the field at the moment, what you can see are normal squamous epithelial cells. Now, these are the fried egg cells that I was talking about earlier. And looking through, actually, the nucleus is very small compared to the overall size of the cell. These are entirely normal. If you look at this sample now, there's actually a range of appearances that we can see here in these squamous epithelial cells. The nucleus is taking up much more of the surface area of the cell. In fact, in this cell, it's virtually filling it, and this is a severely dyskaryotic cell. How many of the samples that come through are abnormal? In our laboratory, we process just under 60,000 samples a year. About 93 to 94% will be negative. So of those 6 to 7% that are abnormal, what's the next step? Someone with low-grade abnormalities, they may have a repeat smear. For women with moderate or worse abnormalities, they will be referred to the colposcopy unit. That was Tanya Levine, consultant cellular pathologist at Northwick Park Hospital. The presence of abnormal cells in a cervical smear doesn't mean that a treatment will be needed. The next step, as we've heard, is to have a colposcopy to investigate the area further. So I'm now at the Sloan Street Clinic in London with gynaecological surgeon Thomas Ind. Some abnormal smears just need to be repeated. If you have another abnormality, you would come for a colposcopy, which is an examination of the cervix using a specially designed microscope uh, with some dyes. If there is an area that we can see suspicious of precancerous change, we would take a little biopsy. What's the next step, then, if any abnormality is confirmed? Most of the time, your body has the natural ability to clear these cells. But what they can do is they can form abnormalities at the bottom part of the basement membrane, which is the area of the cervix that lines the cervix. Now, if only the bottom third of that basement membrane is affected and has had cellular change in the nucleus, we would call that CIN1. And most of the time, that goes away on its own, unchanged. If two-thirds to three-thirds of that area is affected, that would be CIN2 and CIN3 respectively, there is a good chance, if we don't treat those, those abnormalities, that it would progress to cancer in the future. So women with those abnormalities generally have treatment. And what does CIN stand for? Cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. What that really means is cervix in the skin new cells. So a patient has come in and been found to have, say, CIN levels 2 or 3. What are the options available to them? The most common treatment in the UK at the moment is something called a loop comb biopsy. It's also called a LETS procedure, and in the States they call it a LEAP procedure. And what normally happens is is that during a colposcopy, a small sugar cube-sized piece of tissue is excised from your cervix and removing the area of abnormality. We now use a form of energy called diathermy, which is just a very high-voltage electrical instrument that uh, removes the piece of tissue, a bit like a cheese wire, and it's done very swiftly in a few minutes. What would you say the success rate is for people that come in for these treatments to not need them again or to actually prevent them from getting cancer? If you have a treatment, it's generally about 95% successful, and by that I mean you will never have another abnormal smear again. 
And just lastly, how would you summarise then the benefits of the screening process as a preventative measure against cervical cancer? Well, I think most people would agree that the National Health Service Cervical Screening Programme is probably one of the best cervical cancer prevention programmes in the world. It's all about getting people to attend. And in this country, nearly 80% of people attend for their cervical smears. It's attendance which is the key issue, not the process that you go through afterwards. And this is the problem that we've encountered with the vaccine, is that if people don't attend for the vaccine, it doesn't matter how effective it is, it's not going to prevent cervical cancer. Thomas Ind from the Sloan Street Clinic, and before him, Tanya Levine, who's a consultant histopathologist at Northwick Park Hospital. They were both talking to Miracentha Lingam about the importance of cervical screening. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith and Katani. We're talking transmissible tumours and we're talking about cervical cancer this week. If you have a question for us, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now it's time to join Ben and Dave to get experimental and find out what carrots have to do with spotting cancer cells. For last week's experiment, we were seeing how biology can help you get rid of stains from your clothes. But this week, we're actually looking at the stains themselves. What are we up to, Dave? We're going to look at how the stains can actually help you do biology. Now, speaking as a physicist, if you look down a microscope at a cell on its own, it's pretty boring. It's all transparent. You can just about see some odds and ends kicking around inside it. But one of the things which biologists do to make it a lot more interesting and a lot more easy to understand what's going on is to stain the cells. But the really neat thing is that you can make the stains stick to different bits of the cells. So you could colour the nucleus one colour and the cell membranes another one. Excellent, multicoloured cells. So what are we actually trying out today? Well, the first thing we're going to do is take some food colouring, or in our case, actually some felt-tip pen and a bit of water, and see how that stain interacts with water and oil. We have a glass with a very small amount of water, just about an inch deep or so in the bottom, and we're going to put a felt-tip pen point down into the water. And very quickly, I can see the colour coming out into the water. Yeah, this is a washable pen. The inks inside it are designed to be very soluble in water, so it's all dissolving beautifully in the water. We've got a really, really dark black substance at the bottom of this glass now. And we're going to see how that interacts with oil. OK, now we have normal sunflower oil we're using for this. So you've poured that into the glass with the coloured liquid, and as oil tends to do, it's floated on top, and at the moment we've just got these two separate layers. That's right, the oil and water aren't mixing. And the oil doesn't seem to be changing colour at all. That means the stain is very, very soluble in water, but not in oil at all. It isn't attracted to oil. What's next? Let's compare that to carrot stains. How are we going to get the stain out of that? Obviously, if we just dunked a carrot in some kind of solvent, it's not going to get the stain out very well because the skin in the way is rather you've got to break up all those cells. So I'm going to grate it nicely. The grating is nice and fine to get the maximum surface area. And what should we do with our nice pile of grated carrot? Well, we can now put it in a jar and see how well it's dissolved in both water and oil. I'll put some oil in to just cover the carrot. You don't want too much, otherwise you won't be able to see the effect very well. Put the lid on, and an important thing in this sort of thing is to shake it up so you expose as much of the oil to as much of the carrot as possible. And already that's looking a very bright orange. Let's have a go with the water. 
And that's also gone a nice shade of orange. So now it really just looks like we've got two jars of marmalade. How can we tell what the difference is between these two? Well, so obviously the orange colour in carrot is quite soluble in both water and oil. We can also do something else, which is actually a really important thing in chemistry. So now if we have a look at the liquids themselves, we can either try and strain them with a sieve or something, or just pour them out very, very carefully into another glass. We're left with quite a clear glass of very orangey-looking liquid. It looks a bit like orange squash. Let's do the same thing for the oil. And from that, you're getting something that looks more like orange juice than orange squash. They do look quite different. Should they look the same? That depends on whether there's the same things in them. And is there any way we can find out? Not for definite, but one way we could find out whether there was anything different about the two would be now to add some oil to the water and some water to the oil and see what happens. I did a couple earlier because it takes a while for them to settle out. I added some water to the oil one and shook it up nicely and then left it to stand for a while. And as you can see, the water is now almost entirely clear. Yes, the oil is still just as orange juicy as it was before and the water looks pretty much like clean water. So nothing there has gone from the oil to the water. But what about the other one where you put clean oil in the stained water? In this case, the pigment seems to have moved from the water into the oil, which has now gone quite a nice deep orange colour. The pigment in carrots is called beta-carotene, which is actually two vitamin A molecules stuck together. It's very soluble in oil, but hardly soluble in water at all. If it's not soluble in water, then why did the water go orange in the first place? What's actually happened there? Well, if you look very carefully at the water, it's not nice and clear like the oil is. It's actually really quite cloudy, and there's little lumps of carrot in there. Those lumps of carrot have probably got bits of beta-carotene, probably dissolved in some oil inside the cells, just floating around, not actually dissolved in the water. So what we actually have in the water is just a suspension of bits of carrot. There's no beta-carotene dissolved in there at all, but when you then added the oil, the beta-carotene could dissolve into the oil, and that's why it changed colour. This is actually a trick which is often used in chemistry to purify a substance. If you've got a whole mixture of random stuff in, dissolved in one solvent, but your product will dissolve in another solvent, but all the rubbish won't. You just mix two solvents up and separate out the two solvents, and you've got a nice pure version of your product. So what does this tell us about staining cells to look for cancers? Well, if you want to stain cells, you want to make your stains stick to the bits of cells you're interested in. So you can get stains which are probably a bit like beta-carotene, which are very oil-soluble, which will stick to the cell membranes. You can have other stains which will stick to DNA, which are a bit dangerous because when they stick to the DNA, they can affect how it works. Um, and then you can have lots and lots of other stains which stick to individual proteins or types of proteins. If you pick your stains right, you can make cells which are cancerous or precancerous stand out to someone who's trained to look for them, and they can identify them. So the secrets of spotting cancerous cells could, in fact, be hidden in some carrot soup. That's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon. So, beta-carotene, the chemical that gives oranges their colour, soluble in oil, not in water, and we can use this trick to stain cells and other chemicals in them and help us to understand what we're seeing down a microscope. Good stuff. We've had a question in here from Margaret, who says, this is from Eric Taylor, he says, I know that cervical cancer is caused by HPV transmitted to the woman by the man during intercourse. Do men get HPV from women who are infected? Can a man get it from another man? Can a woman get it from another woman? And finally, because men don't have a cervix, does HPV do anything to men? Yes, to all of the above. HPV is transmitted 
from skin to skin. So it's very important to emphasize that you don't have to have full sexual intercourse, penetrative intercourse. It's foreplay, kissing is an easy way of transmitting. Now, more men than women get cancer of the anus, the back passage. Men get cancer of uh, the head and neck, and it looks as though more men than women get cancer there as well. So, yes, there, men get HPV from women. Women get, women get it from men. Uh, men get it from other men if they have sex with them, and it's the same for women with women. Got a question here for uh, you, Elizabeth. It's from James McCullen, and he says, how are translocations, in other words, rearrangements of bits of DNA related to cancers? How does this actually happen, and why does it cause cancers? Oh, well, cancer happens when genes called tumor suppressor genes and oncogenes are mutated and cause the cell to start dividing abnormally. And this can happen when you get single point mutations in your DNA, which mutate an, an oncogene or a, or a tumor suppressor gene. But they can also occur when two genes can come together abnormally in a translocation. And what this can often do is to drive a gene which is not normally active in a particular cell type up to an abnormal level of activity, which can sometimes cause the cell to become cancerous. I get it. So by uh, the chromosomes rearranging themselves, a gene which would normally be off in a cell can end up being put next to a gene which is normally on in that cell. So the cancer-causing gene also gets turned on abnormally. It makes the cell misbehave. That type of thing, yeah. OK, thank you very much. It's now it's time for our rather horseplay question of the week. Have I given it away with Diana O'Carroll? This week we'll have no naysayers. Hi, this is Evil Eye from Mount Dora, Florida in the United States. My question is, why did donkeys hee-haw, horses bray, and what sound do zebras make? So why do these equine animals, which are more or less capable of breeding with each other, make different noises? My name is Alban Le Masson. I am a lecturer in Rennes University in the northwest of France. So to this question, say, I really can't say because... There's just a very few work done on equine vocal communications. The only thing we know is from horses. We don't know anything between mules and donkeys or zebras, for instance. My only experience is when I was working in the field, I often listened to zebras. And it sounds like in between mules and horses, something in between. But we really don't know. This has to be studied more systematically. It has something to do with phylogeny and anatomy. Believe it or not, no one has worked on comparing the noises of these animals properly. Alban suggested anatomy may play a role. So let's hear how different these noises are. And here's a horse. A donkey. And a zebra. There is a sort of similarity between them all, with both the zebra and the donkey doing that sort of hiccup with their braying. Now, donkeys and zebras are thought to be more closely related, so it could be something the modern horse hasn't inherited. Or they might differ because of the social organisation of their species. Horses actually have a number of different calls, as Alban describes. They have a very small vocal repertoire of a few calls. And one call is particularly interesting. It's the weenie call that we have studied more intensively. And this is a particular call that they often produce when they are far from each other. 
So it's a kind of long-distance contact call. So in order to be sure that this has a social function, we studied the acoustic structures of Winnie calls to see if we can find acoustic differences between individuals. And we found that duration or frequency parameters changes. For instance, you can have a much higher pitch voice in mares than in geldings, which are also higher pitched than stallions. But it also depends on the social status of the animal, because dominant stallions have a much lower pitch voice than subordinate stallions. Then finding these acoustic differences doesn't guarantee that the animals will use it. So we have conducted a playback experiments, and we played the winning calls of three social categories of horses, the familiar neighbors and familiar strangers and group members. And we found that our horses, when hearing these three voices, could discriminate the social category of the color, and they adapted their behavior response in accordance to the color. They would be more attracted and willing to, to go towards the loudspeaker for familiar animals, but they would be very vigilant and careful when hearing unfamiliar animals. So that gives us the conclusion that we found acoustic differences between individuals, and these acoustic differences can be used by animals and decoded by animals. So if a horse has developed different calls for social encounters, perhaps the divergence in their societies has caused a divergence in their noises. We had one listener, Siobhan in Ireland, who wrote in to tell us about the breeding programme in Russia to domesticate silver foxes. One of the notable developments was that they began to bark, they began to whine, and they developed a more diverse range of vocal communication. So if we domesticate horses and donkeys on the basis of their ability to communicate just a bit with us, perhaps that's caused a change in their voices too. If anyone out there has cleaned out a stable, they'll know all about the smell of urine. But what if it smells of your last meal? Hello, my name's Connor Rouse. Why does eating sugar puffs make your wee smell funny? Let us know your thoughts by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or write your answers on the forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Does it do that to your wee cat? Yeah, when I was little, I think I did notice it, absolutely. If you know why some foods make your wee smell funny, do get in touch. That's Diana O'Carroll with our Question of the Week. And uh, you can, in fact, get Question of the Week as a podcast in its own right on uh, iTunes, or you can go to our website, that's nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW. And don't forget, um, we're having a debate on our web forum where you can put in your thoughts in relation to each of those questions and also see what everyone else is thinking too. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum well we have unfortunately run out of time that's it for this week i have to say a very big thank you to our guests ed druitt elizabeth murchison and margaret stanley who helped us to understand a bit more about what's going on in the world of transmissible tumors and cancers this week and also to our wonderful production team tom simpkins mira synthalingam dave ansell and ben valsler Next week, it's our science phone-in extravaganza. So if you want to know how long can a camel go without a drink, does a blue moon really ever exist, um, and where do odd socks go in the wash, then do drop us a line. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week and see you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Ha <laughs> ha
Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.